Welcome to the Life on Repeat podcast with me, Laura Valancourt, licensed mental health counselor, geriatric mental health specialist, and dementia coach. I'm so happy that you found us. Well, hello, everyone. It is my pleasure today. I, I have to tell you, I'm so excited to get to introduce Dr. Daniel Potts to have a discussion with us today. I'm kind of a, a big fan <laughs> of his, and I'm learning more and more about Dr. Potts every day. And I have to tell you, Dr. Potts, the more people I meet in the world of dementia, your name just keeps coming up. and oh. And it comes up with so much respect and appreciation. I was interviewing Angel Duncan last week and she and I were talking and she mentioned, and and I hope I'm not putting you too much on the spot here. I'll do an official introduction as well, but she mentioned that you received the most compassionate doctor award. And I'm really curious. I know that might feel strange to you to talk about that with me or with, with our listeners, but I'm really curious about that award. And, and if you don't mind sharing, I'd love to hear. Well, Laura, I'm so thankful to, to be on your podcast. I really am a fan of yours also, because you have done some amazing things through this podcast, but also through the basically web-based caregiver summit that y'all carried off last year, which I thought was wonderful. I was thankful to be a part of that. So been following you for a while. I appreciate the opportunity to be on. And, and yeah, Angel Duncan is a, is a really great friend of mine. We, we go back several years and she has really taught me so much about art therapy and helped us plan our programming. And we continue to communicate basically every day about things that we're doing. And so I'm glad she was on, you know, the most compassionate doctors saying those are, those are vitals.com ratings and rankings that doctors get based on feedback that people kind of give online. And, you know, it's something that I'll put it this way. I, the most important thing for me as a physician is to be a compassionate physician. I need to know what I'm talking about and I need to know how best to help my, my patients and I need to stay up on everything. But the most important characteristics for me, I think, are to be compassionate, empathetic, and a good listener. And if I can do those things, then then I'll be able to help somebody. So that's what I'd say about that. Ah, uh, thank you. I am sorry to put you on the spot like that, but I know Angel said you would not bring that up on your own. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's just, um, I think it's really important for our listeners to know who we're talking to and how, what the influence that you have made, you know, in the world of dementia and folks that might be experiencing memory impairment and their and their families. So your official credentials, you are an MD, and you have the credentials of FAAN, which that's a nursing fellowship of some There's several, there's several FAANs, I think, out there. This one is fellow of the American Academy of Neurology. Thank you. Yeah. So Perfect. it's their one of it's their sort of highest level designation for that group. That's our group that we most neurologists belong to in this country and actually some other countries as well. So fantastic. You are a neurologist. Yes. Um and you do currently work at the U Tuscal 
Tuscaloosa. Am I saying that right? You are. That's correct. VA Medical Center. Okay. I do. Yes. Yes. I'm a full-time neurologist there. See patients every day there. Great. And then the University of Alabama as well? Or- yeah, I teach. I teach at, at University of Alabama, med students and undergraduates, and have a program that we'll probably talk about a little bit later there as well. So Wonderful. I do have an affiliation there. Yeah, I'm excited to jump into that too. And another thing I'm, I'm really excited to talk about with you is you are the founder and president of Cognitive Dynamics Foundation, and I am. I do not know very much about that at all, and I would love to learn more about that. So we'll, we'll talk about it. Wonderful. Well. I'm wondering if we might jump in. I like to kind of take a a more personal approach to begin with, because again, it helps our listeners get to know who you are as a person and me as well. And so I know just from reading about you and and the little that you and I have, have gotten to know each other, that your experience with your father really shaped and created, had an impact on your work. And I believe there's a, a an art component to your experience with your father, too. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that? I'm happy to. And, and, and I really wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now in terms of dementia advocacy and caregiver support and all of that if it weren't for the story of dad. And so it's, it's, it's really central to what I do. So I will. I'll share I'll share with you about dad. He he was uh, his name was Lester Potts. He was a. Uh, rural Alabama sawmiller, born in 1928. And he was, the best way to describe him, I guess, is a strong, steady, still waters run deep, hardworking, humble guy. And he was that way all my life. Everybody knew him that way. And he was a very capable fella. He was a helper in the community. He was a leader in the community. And he was the kind of guy that, that sort of got it done and you found it done, and oh, who did that? Oh, Lester. He was one of those those people, you know. And that and that's uh, the kind of the, the way he was in the community. But but an artist, he wasn't. He was not a very aesthetic guy, you know. He was a get her done guy. But Dad got Alzheimer's disease. Started showing some early signs, probably when he was about seventy. He had retired from the lumber business, and he and my mother had moved here to Tuscaloosa from about forty or fifty miles away, which is where I grew up out in rural Alabama and Aliceville, but he was showing some signs before they moved and signs that I really didn't pick up on or was in denial about. So, you know, and I, of course, had a lot of guilt re- related to that later when I found out a, something was going on. Were you a neurologist at the time? That- I was, yes. Uh-huh. I was already in practice here in Tuscaloosa. It's one of the reasons dad and mom moved over here is to be close to us and our daughter at the time, we have two now. And, um, so yes, I was already a neurologist and you know, it's something you never, you know, expect to happen. I mean, my parents were both very healthy, very vibrant, very active, hadn't shown any signs of cognitive. It's only 70, I, I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and just a very, very strong and healthy guy. I mean, very, very physical. And so, you know, it was it was shocking to finally realize what was going on. He had had some behavioral changes. He had a little surgery that he got confused after. And when he moved to, when mom and dad moved to Tuscaloosa, he got a job because he had to be working, doing something. So we got a job parking cars at a local physician's office complex. And that's where his confusion manifested itself. He began to lose cars. He began to forget where he parked cars, lock keys in cars, et cetera. I didn't know any of this, but one day I got a call from his supervisor. Basically, she was a hospital attorney. 
And she said, are you aware of what's going on with your dad? I said, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And so she came over to my office and talked to me about it. And that was the day that it all sank in. And I began to look back over things that mother had been telling me and that sort of thing. And Phil, I was, oh, no, we've missed it. And uh, that was a terrible, that was a terrible day. I'm thinking, thank you so much for sharing this, because I'm really thinking about all the families out there who feel similar, you know, and and Mm. here you are a neurologist and it's so different when it's your own family member. It's so different when you have a personal connection with someone and history with someone. And I I mean, I I just want to validate for so many of our listeners that first of all, the experience of feeling guilt that you may not have caught something sooner, but mm-hmm. then also the, the, the very real reality that when it does come to your own personal relationships, you're not going to see as clearly as, as someone else may. It, it's so You're not, and you're going to explain away. I mean, I, I, I did explain away things that you see, things that could be explained away. So in other words, oh, there's been a move, they're in a new place, he's just had a surgery, he just retired, things are different. So you've got these explanations that you pop out because you're trying to to not see the reality of what's happening. And I think that was a lot of what it was for me. Yeah. It's even hard, Laura, for neurologists and other physicians to diagnose dementia in their patients. And some of it is that same thing you feel a little bit helpless. You don't feel like you have the answers. You don't feel like you've got a pill that can help someone and that you can cure someone. Or So you bump up against that and that's tough for physicians to do. So anyway, I, I thought I would throw that no, in as I, well. This is so, that is such an important statement that you made because I think that especially the the field of neurology, you know, the medical model, especially the Western medical model is so focused on presenting a cure or uh, alleviating symptoms or prescribing. And I see that so much, you know, with, with the families that I work with. And I imagine as a neurologist, you have those moments where you may feel helpless. And, and so I'm curious, I know we're kind of diving, we'll probably be diving all around it yeah. in our conversation. What is that experience for you when you meet with families and yeah. And you don't have a prescription that you can just write. Right. Well, it, it's tough. There's a helpless feeling. I don't like to bump up against the wall of not knowing what's going on with a patient. That is very frustrating to me. Mm-hmm. And I also don't like to feel like I can't help them in some way. So what I had to do is change my paradigm. What you have to do is change your paradigm when you have conditions like Alzheimer's. The other thing that is so important to me as a neurologist with people with chronic illnesses is the relationship that I have with them. I mean, I I enjoy seeing my patients again and again and having that relationship. The world would tell you, you can't have a relationship with somebody with dementia. I mean, that's what, that's what the mindset is because they're less of a quote, less of a person there to interact with. It's tougher to, you know, you can't get, get past the small talk and the social facade and all of that. Now I know that's not true. And so you can have a relationship. You just have to change the way you go about it. So the things that I went into medicine for and the things that kept me going, the relational aspects of it, 
the diagnostic aspects of it and knowing what's going on, local, locating the lesion, the, the condition, and then being able to help someone with it and help their families. Those are challenges when you're dealing with dementia. But you have to reset yourself and learn, yes, I can have a relationship. Yes, I can know what's going on. This is not organic brain syndrome. And we can diagnose these things. And yes, I can help someone live well. And so those are the things that that really have come out of dad's story for me that I think have made me a better neurologist, actually. Amazing. So that's the paradigm shift that you're talking yeah. about. With and also understanding the caregiver, understanding the care partner better and what they're going through, because I've I've assisted mom myself as a secondary care partner. So now I know. So I listen to them and I take them very seriously. You know, so that's that's the that's the other thing. Empathy for the caregiver and for the patient. You know, that's something that a lot of folks, a lot of care partners and caregiver, family caregivers talk about is the not knowing how to communicate to their physicians and neurologists about what they're seeing. And I've heard a lot of people say too, they, they don't know what is important information and what isn't, you know, they, yeah. they're experiencing so much day to day and they have this precious, you know, time with their doctor, their um, loved one's doctor, and they're not clear what to be reporting and also wow. how to develop a relationship with that provider so that there is that trust with the caregiver as well. Does, does that make sense? Yes, it does. It um, really makes sense. You know, one of the things that I that I want, well, the things that I want to hear about are, first of all, I should say whatever the caregiver needs to say and whatever the patient needs to say to me. But I also want to hear what's the day look like? You know, how, how is someone functioning in, on a daily basis? Or is, are there periods where they can enjoy things? What are those things? Are there struggles, you know, in the day? What are those things? So so that that paints a picture of how someone is functioning. And that's really, really, really what matters. Can someone function well enough to have some enjoyment? And if not, how can we help them do that? Gotcha. And, and, and again, living well is what this is about. You can live well with, with many different conditions. It's not you get branded with this condition and know you can't have any more joy or enjoyment. Or No, that's not true. So we have to find ways to help people live well. I, and I need to do a better job of that. And I think a lot of physicians need to do a better job of that. I thank you so much for saying that. That in and of itself is a paradigm shift, right? For for individuals that have memory impairment and or their their care providers. Yeah. So let's go back to your dad. I'm really yeah. curious because yeah. I know there's this watercolor art piece there that. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. So dad did get the diagnosis of Alzheimer's, and we we made some arrangements because dad was very hard to take care of at home, and um, we had a we have an adult daycare program in our town called Caring Days, which was a faith based organization that was was daycare. It was not overnight care, but so dad we enrolled dad there not knowing if he would enjoy it, not knowing if he would stay, but he fell in love with it. And one of the reasons that he did was they just accepted him as he was. And there were so many activities that he could be involved in and just be himself down there. There were no expectations of, you know, him being a board chair or being able to keep up with dates and stuff. No, they just loved him. And so the second thing about that was that he met George Parker, who was a volunteer artist that had come down and was starting an art program. Not he was not an art therapist, but he had a real knack for how to how to show people how to do it. So Dad met George and started painting watercolors, and we had no idea he could paint. 
We had no idea he had any talent. My mother said, Lester's not going to do that. Well, he brought home this little hummingbird, a little nine by 14 canvas of a beautiful, brightly colored hummingbird one day. Mother said, honey, where'd you get that? I did it myself, he said. Oh, you did you trace it? I, I need to write somebody a thank you note. I did it myself. I'm proud of my hummingbird. And he was. And wow. over three years, he brought home a hundred more that he had painted. <laughs> That is amazing. I I bet to this day, when you see a hummingbird, you think about your dad. I do. I got a feeder out outside here. And and when (laughs) I see him come up there, I think of dad because really it was, it was, uh, it was, it was a metaphor for dad's spirit being unleashed through the arts. He had, dad was having a hard time talking at the time. He couldn't get his story out. We have to get our stories out. We got to, we got to have somebody listen to our stories. He couldn't get it out. And so he painted it out. And he so these things came out from his, yes, it came, his early life life uh, story came out. Memories of his father, his home place, saws, his father's high top shoes, uh, his friends from, from childhood, they came out in his art, amazingly. Amazing, amazing. I, I, I mean, uh, not only the beauty of him being able to continue to process his life but I bet you and your family learned so much more about him. And we did. You just think that those memories are lost and you won't be able to continue to grow and um, nurture relationships. And this is just a beautiful story of continuing that, that relationship that you had and continuing to learn about him. And yeah, that? the primary thing we learned about him was he's still there. Yeah. And we can be in relationship with him. Those are the two things. Amazing. Amazing. I would love you talk a little bit about the pillars of personhood. Do you mind sharing with us what you mean by that? And maybe give some examples about how people that could be helpful with people with dementia and their family members. Absolutely. And again, it all started with dad. It all started with what I learned from the folks at Caring Days. But I figured out very soon in my reading and in my interactions and in my working with dad and other people with dementia, you got to find the person that's still there in order to have a relationship with them. So you have to you have to know historically who they have been, what what are their characteristics, what are their likes, what are their dislikes, what are their remaining gifts, where are they most familiar, you know, what are their loves, that sort of thing. And so based on that life history, then you have some places to start in your interactions with them and in your care plans with them. And of course, this is, you know, the the foundation of person-centered care is knowing who the the person is. But it's also believing that the person is there. And that is a huge deal because if I don't believe the person is there, then I'm going to have, I'm not going to be as compassionate as I want to be because I'm going to say to myself, it really doesn't matter. I'm going to cut corners. It really doesn't matter if I don't do this with this person today. The person is not going to know if I don't visit them. If, if, I, if I don't believe in my heart and in mind that that person is still there and still uh, is capable of relational interactions with other people, and has needs and and uh, has a story, then I'm not going to give them my best. So you have to believe that. And so what I would say about pillars of personhood is that, yes, this person is different, 
but there are vestiges of the person still there. There are pillars of the person still there. And those pillars would be traits and characteristics that that person has always had and that they've been known for upon which we can build a relationship with them. And I have two, two friends who are marriage and family therapists, Bob Montgomery and Alan Swindell, who see care partners and people living with dementia and are counselors for them. And they use this model uh, to do therapy with them. And they've done a lot of, a lot of work on this. And the, the, the results are really pretty amazing because there are, there are people that really had given up on having any kind of a, of a relationship that was mutually beneficial you know, say it's a spouse, you know, there was no interaction at all that was mutually upbuilding. It was all give, give, give on the part of the caregiver, and they weren't able to get anything back. But helping them tap into those remaining traits and characteristics and gifts, they're then able to construct a relationship again. Why did you fall in love with him? Well, because of this and this and this, because of his kind heart, because of his singing ability, because of his laughter, because of this. Well, those things are still there. And so how do we get them out now? How do we tap deep enough to find those things? And so that's what Pillars of Personhood is all about. I mean, other people are doing this and calling it something different, but that's, I, I like to, to view it in that way as a house that is, is different, but there are parts remaining we can tap into. I love that so much. I, and I, I, one of the things you said that really speaks to me too is what does being in a relationship mean? What does that even look like? And, and you really, talked about that so eloquently. I, I think about the mutual receiving and giving of connection and yeah, connection. And so yes. it is just, I, I could see that it is just as beneficial to both the both people, the, the family member and the person who's experiencing dementia. Ideally so. And I will say that, first of all, and I, I want to be real careful because I don't want anybody to feel, I don't want anybody out there to say, what in the world is he talking about? That's not possible. This is not, you know, I, I understand. I, I'm just saying that caregiving is, is a marathon. We know that. And if it can become something that is a growth enhancing, growth producing, love building paradigm, it's going to be easier for us to get up every day and do that, I think. And so if you have to, what you have to do one thing you have to do is put away your ego's idea of how things should be. I mean, for me with dad, I was looking at things the way they were 20 years ago and realized that can't be the way they are now. The relationship has to look different. So I got to take that little icon and set it out here because if I don't, I won't be able to have a relationship with him now. I mean, I'll hold him accountable to something that's that he can't do. And so I've got to see the Lester coming in every day, like the people at Caring Days did, if I'm able to meet him where he is and have a relationship with him. And that's hard for family members to do because we know how they were. We Part of who we are is who they have always been. And so it's just that we have to reframe it. Yeah, reframe. Exactly. Yeah. Meet them where they are now, but also and also honor those pillars of who they innately always have been and will continue to be. Yeah. Yes. Beautiful. Yes. Thank you so much. So that's I, what the art, that's what the art, that's one of the things the art did for us is, okay. uh, is, is, is it, is it pulled out those pillars, those important relationships, those loves, those, 
memories and we could tap in on those. Yeah, I, I mean, really, I so I'm I'm a therapist, but I'm not an art therapist. Angel and I talked a lot about that on our uh, the last episode. And it is fascinating to me when we slow down and recognize that art is really just a medium for creativity. And anytime we enter the realm of creativity, there is no right or wrong. There is no fact-based, analytical, insight-oriented process. It's, it's so fluid and creative. And, and I think that's the part that in so many ways, we could get really philosophical about how our culture doesn't honor that. And we're, we're being challenged to learn that um, through this process. And so I just appreciate so much that you sharing your story about this and also just calling it out to for, for folks to really understand that there are other ways of connecting with individuals and, and ways to continue to grow and continue to develop relationships over time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about your faith and spirituality and in in relation to dementia care as well. I, I will. And, and I will say that I see this walk as a spiritual walk now more than I ever have. And I and increasingly so. Part of it has to do with in searching for the personhood of others. I think we do have to tap very deeply into what a lot of us would consider a spiritual realm to be able to really get into those relationships. It, it, it involves bringing all of yourself to the relationships so presence, being completely present. And I think that's a spiritual concept. And so we're talking about quietness and listening and perceiving and mindfulness, you got to sort of clear everything else out so that you can be in a relationship with somebody who's struggling in their relationships and who's struggling to find themselves. And so it becomes a search. I think also gratitude is a part of it. And that's a spiritual concept for me as well. Finding those bright spots and being grateful for them when you do find the little glimpse of, of light, when you do have that recognition, or when you're just in the moment with somebody, being grateful for those moments. There's a centering that, that goes on there. My life was spiritual and faith-based prior to dad's illness, but I will tell you, I went through a, a, a dark time around the time of that, and afterwards, I was struggling and had experienced burnout and part of that was because of resentment and guilt and shame and all of that that I had. It was a bad time. But others, those relationships that I had that were also spiritual, uh, brought me out. And my inner resilience brought me out. Uh, and so, and, and God brought me out. So now I see that we can grow through this. And it's all how you deal with suffering, you know. I love Richard Rohr, and Richard Rohr says, if you do not learn how to transform your pain, you will certainly transmit your pain. If you don't how to learn how to transform your pain, that may be the pain of caregiving, that may be the pain of losing a loved one, resenting the fact that they have this. If you do not transform that, then you will transmit it to others. 
and to yourself. And so I didn't know how to transform my pain, but, but uh, I found out, you know, how to do that. And so that is an important concept for us. If we're resenting and denying all the time, rather than being grateful and trying to grow in love and bring our most compassionate self to the table, then it's going to be a struggle. Yeah, absolutely. And I could see that people, you know, every individual is on their own journey and how they move through that, you know, so individual. I want to say too, that I'm just thinking about the, the importance of being gentle with yourself as you go through that. You know what? It's, it's easy for me to sit here. I haven't been through that. I, I don't have a loved one in my life. I don't have a spouse or a parent that is um, going through this, but just witnessing others and recognizing how hard people can be on themselves. You, you discussed that. And again, I appreciate so much that you shared that because I think people, in, on one hand, we want to normalize the experience maybe not normalized, but calling it out, the more we talk about it, the more people can bring awareness to it. Because I believe the first step in moving forward through healing is having awareness. And, yes. and so recognizing yeah, that others experience very similar, very personal, yet similar pieces of their journey is, is, is key there. So thank you so much. You know, you're welcome. I mean, this creating creating a culture of compassion in dementia care. We talk about that a lot. And, and that culture of compassion involves you, compassion for yourself and, and cutting yourself some slack as we, go through, as we go through this as care partners, as caregivers. Wonderful. I'm curious if there's anything that we haven't touched on today that you think would be really important for, for folks to hear or for us to talk about. I th no, I don't think, I think this is, I think this is the most important stuff I can think of to say, but I can't overemphasize how important it has been for me to keep this idea of personhood, this concept of personhood in the forefront, because if I do that, then it will pull out of me compassion and empathy in all of these circumstances and in all of these situations. And because personhood is also relational, it pulls out, I don't know, this, this valuing of other people, this, this I-thou relationship, this relating to people at, at a depth that we need to be relating to people at. And, and, there, and therefore, we have to tap into our own depths as well to do this. We can't skim across the surface of this mm -hmm. and expect to be resilient and to live well. So I think the more we can dwell on that idea in the coming weeks, personhood, what does it mean to be living, listening to first-person accounts of dementia, people that are living with it, telling the world how it is. We need physicians to be more compassionate in the diagnosis of this condition and in offering resources to people and in giving them hope and help them to live well. And I'm trying to lead the charge there because I've been through it. You know, and I've got some partners who are helping me do that. But I think these compassionate and empathetic viewpoints that are based on personhood and relationships and training med students and other young people, you know, how to do that as well. 
So growing empathy in folks, I think it's very important. So, I mean, you know, those are, that's where I'm dwelling right now. That's where I'm living. And so that's what I preach about. So <laughs> I love it. Oh, really? I, I mean, your, your message is being heard <laughs> and I am as, as it really should be. I so appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk with us and just all that you're doing. Again, like we talked about in the very beginning uh, of our interview here is it has been kind of a lonely journey for not only people who have dementia, people who are caring for folks who have dementia, for professionals in the community that a lot of people have just been trying to figure this stuff out on their own. And I think this is a beautiful day and age where we can come together with technology and across time and space to share these messages and really grow together through this journey of dementia and the world of dementia. How can other people find you, uh, you know, if they want to learn more about what you do, where you are? Yeah, I'm all all over social media. (laughs) Okay, good. I was going to just throw a little plug in there. I I know that you're a poet (laughs) as well. Yeah, I love to write poetry, and that that came from Dad's art too. So I, I started writing poetry after I started looking at Dad's art. So I've got a I've got a, a Twitter feed, Daniel C. Potts. I'm on Instagram, DC Potts MD, and uh, our foundation, Cognitive Dynamics, which we created in memory of Dad to bring the arts and uh, this kind of compassionate care and storytelling to people living with dementia. You can, you can find us at www.cognitivedynamics.org. You can get our website. We've got a YouTube channel that's got a link there for us. I can and so, uh, and, see that. I, I am aware. And, and no. do you mind telling us a little about that? I'm so sorry. I, that was one of the things no. I was really excited to talk about. <laughs> Happy to. Yeah, Cognitive Dynamics is a 501c3 nonprofit uh, that we have programming that uses art therapy and, and other basically expressive arts to reach and build relationships with people living with dementia and help them to live well. We have a program called Bringing Art to Life, which is our main program that Angel Duncan helped to start, which pairs students with people living with dementia, usually in, in settings like an assisted living facility or an adult daycare, but in some homes as well. And we pair up those students and those people living with dementia in an art therapy experience, usually weekly, where we all get together and do art therapy. We learn their life stories. We have the students in didactic sessions where we teach them about dementia, about caregiving, about the expressive arts, about memory, all the neuroscience stuff. And then, you know, we usually have a celebration at the end of the semester where we invite families in. We we maybe create life story books or uh, scrapbooks. And the students get up and tell what it meant to them to get to know these people. And, and that's, a, that's a beautiful setup. And they just love it. And we're doing it right now um, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, with the University of Alabama in Birmingham, Alabama, in Chicago with Chicago Methodist Senior Services. Um, Angel Duncan just had a session this week. Uh, we use the Yale Art Gallery and we have an art, virtual art experience for everybody. And then we create art after that. So uh, we're just having a big time doing bringing art to life. It's fun. Amazing. Amazing. That is making change, you know, in, in the world. And thank you so much. I, I am very, very honored to have you on our podcast today and um, just appreciate you so much for the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me, Laura, and for everything that you do. I appreciate you as well. And 
A lot of people are going to listen to this and be inspired just by what you're saying and what you're doing and the guests that you have on. So it's, it's an honor and a, pr- a privilege to be here. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute, nor is it meant to convey professional, legal, psychological, financial, or medical advice. If you can use such services, please seek them out from someone you trust.